Derek, Derek, Derek. Diamond, Diamond, Diamond. Experience! Hey, what's up, everybody? It is Monday, April 7th, 2014, and this is episode four of the Derek Diamond Experience podcast. I am your host, Derek Diamond, and hopefully you all had a very productive week and a relaxing weekend, which I can't really say that I did because we at the Wahoo Stadium had our opening homestand, which as of today, we still have one more game to go before we get a little bit of a break. So if I sound tired or exhausted, that is why, because I'm actually recording this intro at 7.30 in the morning. And I don't have a word of the week this week because I, not to make excuses, but I literally have had zero time to do much of anything, look into the news and whatnot. I was actually lucky enough to get my interview for this show early last week, so. And my guest this week is someone that I met back in November at a convention in Dothan, Alabama called Fanaticon, and that is the writer, illustrator, artist, pretty much the creator of a really cool graphic novel called Dust Bunny. It's got a really good old detective slash film noir aspect to it and it's in black and white and it's it's got great characters and it's just a really really interesting read and the creator of dust bunny is named brett brooks he's a very very nice very interesting very intelligent guy he's got great stories to tell we interviewed him for my other show that i'm on called the nerd cave back in november and then we've actually had him on I believe, twice on the Nerd Cave as a guest. So from my aspect, it was kind of interesting to try and think of different things to ask him so it wouldn't seem like a rehashed interview. So we talk a lot about freelance work. So if you're a freelance artist or a photographer or a videographer, you can definitely relate to some of the stories we tell. And if you want to know a lot about the characters and the story of Dust Bunny, then you'll definitely enjoy the show as well. And also, he talks about some upcoming projects he has. So, that's really all I have to say for this week. Like I said, I'm absolutely exhausted, so if I sound even more bland than I usually do, I apologize. But let's get right to the Brett Brooks interview. I'm now joined along with my special guest this week. He is an artist, writer, and creator, and so many other great things. I met him at Fanaticon back in November in Dothan, Alabama. My guest this week is Brett Brooks. Brett, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing actually very well, man. How are you doing? Busy. Been very busy, but it's... It comes with the job. Rather be busy than bored any day. True. That's that's very true. So what what uh, what have you been up to lately? Because people may not know this, but we've actually, not only have we met at a convention, but you've also been on our other podcast, The Nerd Cave, multiple times. Sure. Yeah. Um, the uh, it's It's been a busy season, man. Um, the first couple months of the year... Uh, 
for me anyway as a freelancer, uh, they they can sometimes bottom out. You know, the work peters and tapers a little bit. But uh, this past month, everything kind of shot <laughs> through the roof to a point where it's um, freelance and client work has kind of held my my passion projects hostage uh, for at least a couple weeks now. So I'm trying to barrel through the things that I need to get done so that I can kind of get on to the next. Um, the next projects that I'd like to start putting out there and, and getting uh, getting some eyes on, um, but, but that's been uh, it's always a it's it's a juggling act every day. It's a juggling act. You wake up and you have a tentative schedule, but you know life throws things at you every day that you don't expect, and you may not get this project done, but you got that project done, and maybe this client took a little longer to to get their work done than you anticipated, so you might have lost an hour or two on your on the thing that you want to get home and work on. So it's um, as always, and I think as it will be for the rest of my days, I, it's just a juggling act that I'm just trying to trying to get better at it. And I just I don't I don't know that I've got it down yet, but uh, I'm trying to get there. Yeah, how long have you been doing freelance work? Oh man, I've probably been I've been full time for about about five years, maybe a little under five years. Um, just various clients, um, you know, everything from. I've done a couple of iPhone game titles to, you know, logos, little side bit things, cards and invitations that people want for certain things. Um, uh, whatever kind of keeps the uh, whatever kind of keeps me staying above water. But uh, but yeah, it's been a uh, it's been an on and off thing for five years. It's funny because I have I have other friends that do freelance, and we always kind of joke that, you know, when you're a, when you're a freelancer. And you're your own boss during those times where you don't have a client. You know, technically, <laughs> technically, you are defined as being unemployed. So I've been uh, I've been on and off with that for uh, like I said for a little under five years. But I mean, I'm still here. I'm able to live in Atlanta uh, and and support myself through it. So I'm you know I'm very grateful for that. Cool, cool. So you said you're living in Atlanta. I'm in Atlanta. I'm in Midtown Atlanta. Um, I like it here. I just moved here maybe like six months ago. Um, but I like it. I do. Nice. Yeah. I, we both actually grew up in, in small towns cause you're from Alabama, correct? Yes. I'm from a small town in Alabama. So like this isn't, I mean, I lived in Savannah for a while, um, while I was going to school and I lived in Orlando, uh, while I did my, uh, my work with Disney. So I've, it, the, the city feel isn't new, um, but I think that's, I don't know, I just, I feel like I, I thrive there a little more, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so what, what was it like growing up in, in a small town in, in Alabama? Uh, I enjoyed it, you know? It, when I was growing up, it was not, um, the communication wasn't as, as broad and um, uh, available, I guess you could say, as it is today, so... You know, and during my childhood up to my up to my teens, you kind of didn't know you were in a bubble, um, but that was okay. I liked my bubble, and I, di- I didn't know I was in, one, but I liked it. Um, I had good friends, I had good family. Um, you know, I, I I enjoyed the town that I lived in. There was always a a yearning to to go beyond it and to do more than I think was offered in my immediate area, but it it wasn't in in such a um, bitter way at all it was just that was just where my heart was my heart was to get out of town um to leave it behind and, and go pursue other things but not to leave it behind you know in in such a disconnected sort of 
mindset. Um, I always love going back home, and I love where I'm from. I love I love my small town. Um, so I don't know. There's a lot of things that I think shaped kind of where I've ended up, you know, today and in my career, uh, or this or the start semblance of my career. Um, but it was fun, <laughs> you know. It was it was definitely fun. It was it was it was it was good growing up in a small town. I think I do. I think it shaped a lot of decisions and and the ways that I am uh, today. Yeah, I I can I can honestly relate to that. I I feel exactly the same way. I, I haven't made it out of that small town yet, but hopefully one day. Um, growing up, like you're, we'll get to this in a minute, but you're an an artist, a writer, was animation always a big part of your life growing up? Yeah, growing up it definitely was, um, which is funny because it's it's actually not so much anymore, um, at least not taking it in. Um, yeah, when I was a kid, I, I grew up on you know the Saturday morning cartoons, uh, Winnie the Pooh and Gummy Bears and um, Ghostbusters, um, the Bugs and Tweety show. I mean, that's, and I, you know, Rocco's Modern Life, anything that came on after school that I got to catch. Um, but I also grew up on a lot of comic strips. Uh, I didn't read a lot of comic books, but I, I read a lot of comic strips. And I think you and I, we talked about this on a, on a Nerd Cave interview. Um, yeah, it definitely, um, it definitely was an influence. And I still, to this day, I still illustrate and work on things. And I, I see that, like, I still see that callback to my childhood and kind of what I fell in love with as a kid. Um, growing up, so yeah, I think so. I think I do think it was an influence, and I think I think film as well. I think film was an influence. Um, I had you know teachers that were influences. Like I said, all that there was just this big amalgamation of things in my life that kind of kind of came together to form. I think what would inspire me later to kind of pursue the path that I did. Um, but but de definitely early animation and traditional. You know, there wasn't a lot of three D was peppered in to traditional animation when I was growing up. You know, like the Lion King, you know, the uh, the wildebeest, you know, scene in the ravine or or anytime there was fire or Beauty and the Beast dancing in the ballroom. 3D was sort of an adornment uh, for film as opposed to, you know, before Toy Story anyway, as opposed to like the, the main reason you went and saw it or the main medium that was used to make it. So I grew up, you know, watching animated movies where if you if you watch the frames you can actually see the line work dancing on the character because it's hand drawn um so i, I don't know there was something there's a craft in there that i, I really think maybe encrypted itself <laughs> into my head and i just i've never been able to get away from that out of all those cartoons you named that you watch which one was your favorite i didn't name this one but danger mouse i think was my favorite um it was an old cartoon done by Thames Entertainment, um, British cartoon, and it was about a little mouse. It actually, was a direct influence on Dust Bunny. I mean, totally a total direct influence on Dust Bunny. Um, I can see that. Yeah, I mean, completely, absolutely, completely. In fact, the first round of of pages I did for Dust Bunny back in in college, it was just a two page comic. But um, I totally, I I just, I stole, I completely stole from the cartoon. Of course, that, that never went anywhere. I never did anything with that. Um, but yeah, Danger Mouse and Pinfold and Colonel K and um, Baron Greenback. Those uh, those are the guys that I grew up on watching on on Nickelodeon when it still came on. 
That's crazy. I, I never would have thought of that. Like, I, Danger Mouse is the one that's got the mouse with the eye patch, right? Yeah, he's got the eye patch. He wears a white turtleneck that's the same color as, as his body. And then he drives the uh, the Mark IV, which is a yellow yellow and orange car that converts into a into a jet. He drives out of the uh, the little curbside, like the brick lifts up, and he drives out of it like a garage at the beginning theme song. He's jumping over alligators and bombs are exploding. Yeah, man, I, I love that cartoon. I still love that cartoon. Yeah, I, I never got into that cartoon, but I, I remember seeing it a couple of times. But now that you mm-hmm. mentioned that, yeah, I can definitely see the Dust Bunny influence. That's crazy. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so when when did you first discover that you wanted to become an artist or a writer? Writing came later. Writing was something that I always enjoyed doing, but I never thought that that was something that I could do like beyond just I mean as a hobby or just, you know, something that eh, it might be fun to write, but it never really it never really kind of like solidified. Uh, man, I don't know, you know, like I was always drawing when I was a kid. I think all of us did uh, to some degree. Um, and I'll tell you the story. Um, I told, I told this to Mark actually on, on, uh, on Turtles Do It, uh, a couple weeks ago. And I mentioned this actually at Fanaticon as well, but it's, it's something that I, I've, I've told this story more in the past, uh, probably six months than I think I've ever told. And the more I tell it, the more it's like, wow, that really is when it happened. I think I think this is when it happened. I was um, I grew up on Garfield and Bugs Bunny, and uh, we didn't have the Disney Channel when I was growing up, so I didn't really get into Mickey and Minnie and all those. But uh, there were all these other cartoon characters that I that I was involved with, and there was there was a magazine. It was it was Mad Magazine, and in that magazine they have a uh, they have a pantomime comic duo uh, called Spy versus Spy. That I'm sure most people are familiar with, mm-hmm. and um, I just I was always I don't know that I ever really read Mad Magazine. I would always flip it to just that. I think there was like one or two per issue, and I would always flip to those and just read those because I always liked the way they would construct the little contraptions to you know blow each other up or whatever. There was just something like interesting about about that whole setup. Um, but kind of putting that putting that on the side, put that in the side pocket. I knew as a kid. At the young, at even a young age, that I couldn't do anything with Bugs Bunny, I couldn't do anything with Garfield because they didn't they didn't belong to me. I didn't create them, and I didn't want to do anything with them for that same reason. Um, it wasn't mine. So I remember sitting in my in my bedroom on Gunner Street in Ozark, Alabama, uh, being influenced by by Spy vs. Spy and understanding that I couldn't do anything with these before I knew what copyright laws were, I couldn't do anything with these copyrighted characters. And I sat down and I created my own character, my first characters. Um, and it was a bomb and it was a stick of dynamite. And they were, their name were Bommy and D. And it was a cat and mouse game. They, they ran around each other. Try, they ran around uh, trying to like build contraptions. It was another ripoff. It was a spy versus spy ripoff. And they would try to light each other's fuses and blow each other up. And uh, those characters hung with me from that eight, from about eight years old until... I mean, I still have them, but till till about middle school. Um, but there was this, there was this. I don't know, man. It was really crazy. There was this moment when it happened. When I created them, they were sitting on paper and they were mine. Nobody knew about them. It was my own little secret that I was the only one that got to tell. Um, there was something like it was. It was powerful. It was a real. It was a really powerful moment for an eight year old kid to have to have like found this idea and to had, you know created something on his own without any um without anyone telling him how to do it um and i think 
I really think that's when it. I, I think that's when it started. I, I can't pinpoint it for certain, but I I remember that story among very few moments of creating a character or, or knowing exactly when this when a certain thing came to be. Um, and I think that very much might have had something to do with with the trajectory of my life after that. So leaving high school before I know you went to. Uh, Savannah College of Art and Design, but you actually went to Full Sail first, right? I did. I did. Um, I went to Full Sail for a year, um, and I studied computer animation. Um, and I say I studied it because I didn't uh, really love it. I, it was kind of a, I don't know. I wasn't good at it either. I sucked at it. I was, I was getting like, I was getting like A's, B's, and C's. And I feel like in that field, you need to get nothing but A's to get a job. Mm -hmm. But I didn't, I didn't love it. Um, I went through modeling, animating, uh, I failed rigging, um, texturing, I went through the whole gamut. That's actually where I was introduced to Photoshop. I was actually introduced to scanning artwork uh, at Full Sail. And what ended up happening is I would go to my classes. And back, I don't know how they structure it now, but back then when I went, they had scheduled classes for 1 a.m., 11 p.m., 5 a.m., um, and it was to get you into the groove of understanding, like, you're not getting into a nine-to-five industry. You're getting into a, an industry that's around the clock, you know, and you just get things done as they need to be got, you know, as they need to be got done. So uh, I was kind of introduced to that pattern, I think. But when we would leave class at, you know, 11, 11 o'clock at night, midnight, 1 o'clock, uh, I didn't go home and study the, the assignment. I went home and I escaped again into drawing and sketching and doing cartoons and and uh and small comic strips and stuff and i think you know what well, full cell was a great college it was and i have a lot of friends that i graduated with that i sat next to in classes that have worked on that have worked and are still working on huge industry films right now and um but it just wasn't it wasn't where i was at you know it just wasn't something that that sparked me so i think going to the school helped me realize like I always knew, but I think I needed – I don't know that I knew that I needed it at the time, but I think I needed something to maybe uh, – that alternative to pop up in my life and go, okay, this is what you would be doing if you're not doing what you love. Now let's get back to what you love. Um, so while the college was great, it wasn't necessarily up my alley, but it prompted me to look into Savannah College of Art and Design. And even beyond whatever college I would have gone to, it prompted me to look into what I wanted to do with my life uh, and, the, and the direction I wanted things to go. And once you graduated from SCAD, did you immediately start working on what would become Dust Bunny, or did you do any freelance work, or what? What, what did you do when you graduated college? Uh, I worked at a shoe store. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, I worked at a shoe store, which is an awful experience. Um, nobody I've, should have. I've to heard see. some. I've heard some horror stories about retail. Let me tell you, man. Like retail in general, I I don't I you know not for me, but um, retail that involves feet is uh, it's just, it's gross. Like it's just I there were just days where I just I didn't. It was one of those days where I wish I didn't have a nose and I wish I didn't have nerves in my hands. <laughs> I wish I couldn't feel the things that I felt, things that I can never unfeel again. Um, but I worked in a shoe store. I served tables at a restaurant for a little while. I mean, I did. It's the it's the trope, man. It's the typical cliche. Art student graduates and goes into jobs that have nothing to do with his studies. Um, and that was probably for about probably for about six months or so. It, it, it actually wasn't long. Uh, it wasn't like terribly 
long in the grand scheme of things. I do remember having another small epiphany while I was working at this shoe store in um, in Savannah. I was standing behind the counter watching Netflix on the computer because there was nobody. There was there would there would be nobody for hours, and uh, it just kind of this light bulb went off and it was like, why am I here? This isn't, what am I doing here? Like I could be, I could be farming out for other jobs or, or talking to clients. Like maybe, maybe it's time to look into this whole freelance thing and see how it works. Um, you know, cause companies definitely weren't knocking on my door and you know, I, against that, I don't know that I was making all the effort either. So again, it was one of those things where it's like, I don't, I don't want to do this. I don't want to put shoes on feet. Um, for another day. So I think about a week later, I quit the job and started looking for, um, coasted on the money that I had for a little while and then started looking for freelance work. And it's, it was slow. You know, I got screwed a couple times in, in not, not, not making a contract for myself. I mean, it was a whole trial and error thing, getting my finding out what needed to be done and, and what mistakes I was going to make, uh, uh, like during that process of learning, but um, but yeah, I mean, it took that first step, like saying, okay, well, you, you learn by failing. So I mean, I think that's absolutely necessary. Um, so that's kind of how that happened, and and shortly after, I don't think I was graduated for more than probably about a year. Actually, let's let's just say a year. I think it was about a year after I graduated that I started going into freelance full time and trying to like really fish out for clients and find people that needed artwork done, keeping the website updated and things like that. So so yeah. Haven't gone back since. Yeah, the the thing about freelance work is, and you mentioned the the contract because you can really screw yourself over if you don't have a contract. Because mm-hmm. I I remember the first wedding that I ever filmed. It was actually I think two months before I graduated college, and I never got paid for it because I I didn't know what I was doing. Right. And and since then. And even now, when I do freelance work, always have a contract. Always have a contract. It was funny because the first, uh, what I consider the first reputable freelance job I had, and of course I won't give any names, but uh, I was, I actually called a buddy in that I went to school with. I'm still friends with him, thank God, through that entire fiasco. Um, I called him in to color a comic book. We got we got contracted to do a comic book for a uh, for a musician for for an artist, and. Uh, Decently well known, actually, like pretty pretty decently well known artist. Um, uh, I actually reached out to him via Facebook and said, "Hey, I want to, uh, you know, I just want to work with you." I'd actually been listening to this guy's music for, for a long time in high school and um, found him on Facebook, and I was like, "Whoa!" So I just sort of cold turkey Facebooked him and said, "Hey, you know, I just love your stuff. I'd love to do some designs for you. Whatever." Wasn't expecting anything. Got an email ten minutes later saying, "What can you do for me?" Know, wanting to do all these things, I was like, "Oh, I just, I just want to be involved." Like, you know, I was still in that that green phase where I didn't know, like, "Oh, this will be awesome." So, anyways, I called a buddy of mine, um, and he he uh, colored the comic. It was like a ten page comic, but it was a lot of work. Uh, it was my first time dealing with um, absurd changes, not knowing what you wanted from the beginning, going into something without a script. Uh, stuff that wasn't necessarily on me. Just he, he, his ideas were vague. It was just, a, it was, a, it was terrible. It was an absolute fiasco. Got through the entire project um, at the deadline, the day of the day of the deadline. Uh, called him up for the payment, and he had not run any of the budget through um, the people that were actually like in charge of his whole camp. So he ended up paying. Um, he ended up 
you know, it was just all, like I actually had to get him on the phone and say, you, like this, you can't, <laughs> you can't do that, man. Like we, we're we're kind of technically in the same industry. You know, we do our what we do for for our professions. Like, what are you doing? Anyways, it got so bad that um, I actually. He he ended up paying me out of his own pocket, and I was so angry. And again, I was I was young at the I was younger than I am now, and a little more hot headed, I, I guess. And at that point, of course, a lot had gone on in the two months that we've been doing this. But uh, he actually paid me the money, and I refunded it. I sent it back to him, and I said, I just don't even want to be connected to this project in any way. I don't even want the money. So I, that's how like that's how bad the situation was. And I ended up uh, paying the car, the uh, the colorist out of my own pocket. That was my very first bad experience. Uh, he and I still joke about it. Uh, um, it was it was a good learning experience though. Like I, it was it was garbage when it happened, but I'm glad it happened because it it definitely did. I didn't have a contract. That was my first time ever like not having a contract um, because this guy was like. You know, it was cool, man. Listen to your music. Yeah, let's do some work together. And that was <laughs> I, I. I trusted that, and um, it sucks, man. You can't. I, I hate. I hate to say it, but you can't really do that. It doesn't matter. Sometimes it doesn't matter who it is. So that was my first bad experience with freelance, and and ever since then, it's been uh, definitely uphill from there. But uh, it, it, that was an interesting. That was an interesting break into the whole business. I can't picture you being hot headed. Yeah, I, I'm not. I don't think I am. I, I think I'm pretty level-headed. I think I'm very easily frustrated, but not to the point of not to the point of refunding you money. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty bad, man. It was a it was a bad situation. I mean, yeah, I can that, laugh about it now, but that that had to have been a bad situation if you didn't even want the payment. I know, man, and that's it's funny because I feel like well, I, I have to take. There's a certain attitude I think freelancers should take towards their work that I don't always and I and I know a lot of others don't that I'm friends with it's that you know when it comes down to client work versus a graphic novel that I'm working on my graphic novel wins every time it doesn't it really doesn't matter who the client is my graphic novel wins the passion every time um, so if I can make time for it or if I can even you know shave a little time here and there to make more time for it I, you know I'm going to and there's not an artist in the world that's not working on their own thing that doesn't do the same thing. It's just an it's just an accepted absolute. You really, I mean, that's probably big words to say, but I I think that's generally true for anybody working on their own story or comic book or movie or whatever. Um, but what I've had to kind of adopt, and I I think I was very selfish uh, when I first started, is that when someone contracts you to do freelance, that's their dust bunny. You know what I mean? That's their film. Or that's their thing. That's something that they are proud of. That they want the best too. And so, it having that attitude and understanding, you know, getting out of that self-serving shell that we are very often inside of, um, and kind of understanding, like, you know, I need to be giving my best to these to this client as well uh, as much as I can, um, because you know, you may they, they, there's no reason that they shouldn't be, you know, their the attention shouldn't be on their project too, because they care and are passionate. About their thing just as much as I am about mine. The only difference is mine is generally self-contained and it's only me. Whereas you know when you're working for somebody, it's a team or three or four people. So uh, yeah, man, there, I've learned a lot about kind of I think who I am as a person, who I am as a business person, um, who I am as an artist, as a freelancer. Uh, and I think I think working with clients and contracts has kind of taught me a lot of that. So it's been an interesting <laughs> bumpy ride. Yeah, for sure. You mentioned Dust Bunny. What what exactly sparked the idea of Dust Bunny? Because I know you've told me that what it became wasn't really what you originally intended. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
you know, Dust Bunny was a was a was a fleeting thought. It was a I think I want to make a graphic novel, and then I, I went home and did it um, in one day. No, like I but I started the day that I the day that I decided I wanted to do it. That's when I started doing it, um, and it was originally supposed to be just a detective novel um, with fun characters, with visual puns. Um, it kind of developed as it went along, but as I was as I was writing. Um, the actual the script the script is vastly different than the actual finished product and i think it's because and i think this is with any artist i think what was the things that were happening in my life at the time found their way onto the pages maybe not deliberately through dialogue or there, maybe there weren't direct references to things but i think the energy of of what was happening in my life and the surrounding circumstances that were kind of like in my head all the time, I think those were getting dumped into the line work. I think those were getting dumped into the shading, into the compositions, things that may not be, you know, right there in your face, visible at first contact, but maybe going, I mean, going back and talking about it, I definitely can see things in the book where it's like, oh, I remember, I remember kind of how I felt when I did that or, um, or kind of what I was going through at this point in my life or how maybe one, one thing in my life was resolving and then another speed bump was coming along. Um, Dust Bunny, and I think that's the the thing about the book is that it's not perfect, and I love that. Like it's it's very much there's mistakes all through it. Things that probably I'll only notice. I mean, I guess you could go nitpick something apart until it's nothing, but um, there's definitely things in there that I notice that are not perfect. And there's something about not just the the theme of imperfection and filth and dirtiness in the book itself, but the fact that that imperfection came from the actual artist's hand and it wasn't necessarily always planned. I kind of decided to embrace that. Um, as long as everything thematically worked and there was a gelling from the front to the back of the book, um, I was actually okay with certain mistakes happening. There were definitely times in the panels where I would resist um, Command Z on my keyboard. Like I would not hit the undo button. I would just let that mistake stay on the page because I don't know. It just it just felt right. It felt like there should be. I know that sounds really weird, but it felt like the idea of an imperfection said something about the aesthetic. As opposed to trying to make everything clean cut and and kind of looking like it came off a conveyor belt, um, so yeah, with all that that happened, I think I think that's why Dust Bunny kind of developed into something else. Um, it was supposed to be a leisurely activity, and oh my gosh, man! Then when Kickstarter happened and all the the Facebook likes were happening and people were actually asking about it and sharing it and retweeting things and emailing me to congratulate me on on something that wasn't even finished yet. Um, I got to go back to SCAD and talk to students. Like all this craziness happened, um, and now this year it's already kind of getting onto its second wind with conventions. Um, I, I promise you, I promise you, as God is my witness, I went into that book just wanting to do a comic book. That is the only motive I had for it. It's just making something funny and fun um, that I wanted to read. Uh, everything else that's happened has just been one big pile of cherries on a cake. That's I, you know, that's as much as I can say about that. You've definitely got a lot of cherries on that cake for sure. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So for those who haven't read it, what is the general story of Dust Bunny? Uh, Dust Bunny is a crime noir graphic novel. It's 180 pages um, told in black and white. Uh, and it is about a, a detective named Dust. Uh, he is a He's a bunny and he's held together by static electricity. He has a partner. Uh, named Mite, who is a dust mite, who's about 300 microns in diameter. You, I don't think you see his, the actual Mite's face more than 50 times in the book. Uh, most of the time he's just a speck on Dust Bunny's shoulder. Um, but they are working backwards from an initial murder at the start of the 
start of the story to figure out who's been kind of knocking off um, uh, different figureheads from Basement City, which is where it takes place. It takes place in a basement. All the buildings are made of boxes and milk cartons and water bottles. Um, excuse me. But Dust Bunny's working backwards through the sweep force, which is the policing force in Basement City, to find out you know, and uncover the mystery of who has been uh, knocking off all these these popular faces. Uh, that's the general idea. And it's a very, very good book. I think the the story to me was just, it pulls you in because I, I've always been a sucker for a good detective story. And I think the fact that also it was told in black and white, it gave it that extra dynamic that I don't think it would have had if it had been told in color. Yeah, I didn't, um, I don't know that that was a conscious decision at first. In fact, I don't know that I was going to tone it at all when I started working with it. The shading kind of was haphazard. I think I was just playing around with Photoshop one day and I was like, oh, that looks cool. And I'll just, you know, I decided to use it. But uh, I don't think color was ever an option. I know, I know, I, I think I can confidently say that color was just never an option. And then the more I kind of got into the story idea of it, it just was like, yeah, this doesn't, it just doesn't belong in color. If I can help it, I would never do it anything in color. Um, I would love for the whole, the whole thumbprint of the idea of the, uh, you know, the whole IP to just stay black and white. I think there's something unique about it. Um, I think it kind of gives it a voice, so to speak. Yeah, I I completely agree. It, I don't I don't know if you in, intended for this to happen, but reading the book, even the pages feel kind of. I guess dirty would be the right word, but it's, it's cool. Like it's, I don't know how else to describe it. It was just really, really cool. It just, it added that little bit of dynamic to the book. Yeah, that was definitely, definitely intentional. Um, I, I created textures to throw over every page so that it did feel like, um, you know, that's one of those imperfection things I was talking about because when you're throwing a, a texture over something that doesn't really have a pattern to it, it's just like, crap thrown onto a canvas and you're you're overlaying that onto every page there were times where little specks or hairs or whatever from that texture would catch a character on their face or something and it was like ah that's not perfect but there was something that i liked about that so i would just kind of let the texture resonate through the page as opposed to going through and cleaning it up um because if you're cleaning it up then you're it kind of like eradicates the point the whole aesthetic that i'm going for um so yeah that was definitely um that was definitely an intention Awesome. Yeah, that's it's it's really really cool. It's, it's and it's a very good book and I'm not just saying that because I'm interviewing you for the fourth or fifth time, but it's <laughs> right. Yeah, it it's a very very good book. Thanks man, I appreciate it. What's the being the writer and the artist, what was the process of going through I guess I should say what was the process like being the writer and artist for the book? Like basically in a nutshell, how was the book made? Like, what's the production that goes into it? Um, well, the first thing I always do with an idea is I, I block it out um, just very, very loosely. Um, kind of like a plot point outline. I guess that, like a beat outline almost. Um, however many pages that takes, you know, just open up a Word document to start writing. Um, so I block my scenes out. I know that in this scene, I need this to happen in this scene. I need that to happen. And that'll be bullet points and that'll be sub bullet points and that'll have sub sub bullet points. Um, I'll put little dialogue bits like, Oh, it'd be cool if he, if this character said this and it's just a real dirty layout of everything. And then I'll, I'll go back and I'll clean that up in another word document. Okay. Let's, let's finesse this a little more. And uh, I'll go through that probably two or three times 
and then I'll script it. Um, I think scripting is paramount. I think you have to have a script because I don't, I mean, I don't know how you do it without having one, but, um, I, I would script and I would kind of thumbnail at the same time. Uh, so as I would be writing a page, um, of the comic, you know, panel one, this happens, panel two, this happens, here's the dialogue for panel three. I would kind of have the idea in my head, um, you know, how I wanted the page to look and I would thumbnail that loosely as it went on. And again, as it, when I started working on the final pages, you're working on a thumbnail and you, you tend to be maybe conservative with how you fill a thumbnail sometimes because it's just real rough. In, for me, it's they're very rough. They're just like, okay, we're rough in a character here and there. And then I get to the actual book and I'd have so much real estate on the page that I didn't have anything to put inside. So a lot of the pages came from a very basic, like, I mean, boilerplate concept. And I would like, okay, I've got a whole lot of space to fill here. What else can I put in the background? And I, I honestly think that's where a lot of the world building came from. Um, the buildings themselves, um, the details and things laying on the ground. A lot of it came from, okay, shoot, my thumbnail doesn't really account for all this. I need to fill this space up. Um, or, a, or a word bubble might not fill as much space as I thought it would. Or it would fill more space. Then I'd have to adjust the layout. So it, it's very much a, a push and pull thing, but it's – it's never something where you force it. Like if, if I, if it worked better for this panel to be a vertical down the left side of the page, as opposed to a half, you know, a, a half page panel, I would, uh, I'd let that go. I'd let it breathe. Whatever made the, whatever made the book better, you know, it wasn't too much to, you know, I wanted a, fi- a good final product in the end. So whatever sang the, the loudest, uh, during the process, that's what would win out. I, I like that mentality. Whatever's better for the book, because, I've seen people who work in in film with literature or really any any form of work that they either overthink it or they're too pig-headed with what they want instead of what is best for the work. Sure. So I, I I like I like that mentality. Absolutely. When did you start doing uh conventions? <sighs> Last year. Fanaticon was my first one. Um I actually well that's not totally well that's the first one I sold anything at. I went to Dragon Con in Atlanta last year, um, total like last minute on on the you know last minute decision um, to scope it out and to kind of see what it what it was all about. And it was madness. It's yes, total. It it's absolutely organized chaos. It's cool and it's a lot of fun things to do there. And there's so much to see and so many people to to meet and to look at and to get your picture taken with. It's just a great environment. But it's overwhelming, and I—it's funny because I took, um, I took like I think I had like five copies of my first editions with me, and I just put them in a backpack and I took them to the convention, thinking maybe I'll sell these. And it was like bringing a sewing needle to a machine gun fight. Like there's no, I wasn't no one, <laughs> no one even knew I was in the building. Like I was just a, a speck of sand on the beach. Um, so, but it was good. I'm glad I did it because kind of getting the idea and absorbing everything, uh, it's like, okay, how does this work? I, I spent a lot of time down in artist alley, just kind of seeing how different artists set up, um, went through the walk of fame, but that was my first kind of like cold Turkey going to a convention. Um, That's which, insane. yeah, well, I, if, if we don't count the star Trek conventions, I went to like in the seventh grade, which I don't know that we should, but I went I, – that was my first like big convention. And then Fanaticon uh, with Phil Chalker back in Dothan last year in November, um, that was the first – that was my first convention actually selling um, selling specific you know, product to that 
you know, to that fan base. Uh, and it definitely gave me the itch. So, uh, this year we're already, you know, we're kicking off. I'm going to, we have, um, we did MGA comic con in Macon, Georgia. Um, a couple weekends back, me and Phil did, we tagged him that one. Uh, he represented fanatics as well as Fanaticon. He was promoting his, uh, you know, this year's Fanaticon in Alabama. And then I was selling, um, prints and, and copies of dust bunny. And, uh, I just announced today on Facebook actually that, uh, I will be going to Marble city comic con in Knoxville, Tennessee on the 11th, 12th and 13th of April. And then at the end of April, on the 26th and 27th, I'll be going to um, Atlanta South Comic Con out in – it's near Macon. It's in uh, Stockbridge, Georgia. So we have – I've got two conventions that I'm doing this month. And then I actually have uh, two more each month tentatively right now. Uh, everything seems to be locked in, but we're, I'm kind of waiting to get final, final word on it. Uh, so up through June, maybe July, I've got a, I've got at least one to two conventions uh, a month. My goal is to, is to keep going with that. Um, until the end of the year and again you know cycling back through it next year so so yeah that's uh that's the that's the tentative schedule for this year so far that's awesome i i had no idea that you were going to be doing that many conventions this year yeah it's one of these things man it's like it's like the book's done like there's nothing else to do with it except let people read it you know it's it's finished Mm -hmm. so it just makes sense you know i've i've been wanting to do this um for a while, and conventions weren't even on my plate when I started the book. I wasn't thinking about publishing or going to conventions or, or doing anything beyond just creating a book. And you know, you get a taste of it, and it's like, well, shoot, maybe there's something to this. So, uh, so yeah, we're uh, we're working on getting the book out there to as many people as we can. We have, I've got 500 copies of the book coming in uh, this month. No, I'm sorry, yeah, this month, and that's what will be that's what we're going to be using to to take to the cons until we run out. So we're, we're getting, we're gearing up our arsenal. What do you have to do to prepare for a convention? Um, I'm still kind of learning to be honest. MGA, uh, comic con was, um, it was their first year. It was a little bit simpler of a setup and I was kind of getting, I was kind of gauging what I wanted to do with that one. Um, I think, you know the biggest gamble, even just doing two conventions, the two conventions I've done, uh, is is knowing kind of how much to bring, which you, you never can. You don't know if it's going to be. Well, you got your your dragon cons and your mega cons that you know is going to be a huge turnout. But um, you know, I haven't I haven't been around been through the circuit a lot enough to know kind of what what to expect. Um, definitely get the printing done. I'm getting a I'm getting a big banner done for Dust Bunny um, in the next week or so. Um, like I said, we just ordered 500 books. So just having as much available to engage and to draw in someone that's walking by the booth, um, as possible so that they actually want to stop and talk to you. Um, I have to get my game face on, to be honest, because I'm a, I'm a recluse in a lot of ways. And I, I spend a lot of time at my desk and in front of my computer working on these things. So I have to kind of mentally prepare myself to engage with people and to talk with them and uh, discuss discuss the things that that we both love. You know, it's it's a big mental prep game for me. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah, that uh, conventions are fun. They're mm-hmm. definitely a lot of fun. What are some uh, some upcoming projects you have? Because we were we were talking off air that you actually just finished shooting a movie. Yeah, we did. Um, I, uh, 
Okay, well, so I moved to Atlanta about six months ago, and before that, in July, July of last year, um, myself, uh, my good friend Jason Sheedy, uh, we were both, we, he's also a SCAD graduate, and he's a uh, graduate of film, and then um, Kyle Steineke is a, uh, another SCAD graduate, he also graduated film. Well, they got together and they formed a company called Return Style Pictures, uh, based here in Atlanta, and there was the, it was, it was very much, and not to, not to, self-center this or bring it back to this but it was very much kind of that same dust bunny mentality that they had where they wanted to go into the film business and i and they both freelanced as well um and it was just time to go beyond short films and it was time to go beyond video production um and to do a feature because that was kind of always the game the game plan anyway and so they they did um long 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 story short they uh they we shot a feature um, last year in Roswell, Georgia, uh, about 20 minutes north of Atlanta. Um, it's in, it's, it's in post-production right now. We actually just wrapped the filming this past weekend, uh, in Ashland, Alabama and in Marietta, Georgia. So it's going through the, uh, Jason's editing right now. As we speak, Jason's in front of the computer editing the final scenes. Um, we're cutting it all together, getting it tight, um, it's going to go through digital effects. It's going to go through. We got to get a score put together for it. There's a there's a whole lot of of magic to be done for the film. But I have seen uh, a cut of it, and it it's 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 nice, man. And I'm not I'm not just saying that because we put it together. It's a very professionally done film, um, and it was fun. The biggest thing is it was fun. Everybody that was on crew and uh, some of the uh, well, most all, all the almost all the crew we were, we were all from. SCAD, we're all SCAD graduates, so we'd actually all worked on film projects prior to this, so it was kind of a reunion, um, and there was already kind of a chemistry built up there, so I think that's what made it go so smoothly, but um, but yeah, it will be out in some capacity, I don't know if that's going to be in the festival circuit, or if it's going to be out, uh, distributed, or if it's going to be the public view, or how that's going to work, but in some facet, it will be released this year, uh, hopefully we're shooting for some time in the summer, so lots of stuff that I can't talk about legally, um, so I'm trying to be as I'm trying to answer the question as much as I can without giving too many specifics, um, uh, so I don't get reamed by the guys tomorrow. But uh, but yeah, it's it's very positive. It's it's going to be very well. I think it's very well done. And uh, the name of the movie is Patient, and it is it falls in the thriller mystery horror genre. So uh, it's uh, it's going to be interesting. I think. Yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to seeing it. I I love I love seeing indie movies like that. Because I, yeah, not to sound full of myself, but I can almost feel like I can relate because I'm trying to do something similar, and I've helped work on a couple of short films, so it's right. it, it's cool to see stuff like that succeed. Do you have any other things you're working on? I'm trying to get a um, I'm trying to get another graphic novel off the ground. Actually, uh, that kind of goes back to what we we're talking about in the beginning about balancing things. Um, Right now, I'm like I said, I'm uh, I'm working to get a lot of things off my plate, uh, or at least into some kind of a pattern. Uh, I do have another. I, I've got another book totally blocked out, um, completely outlined. I've it's a right now. I've got it split into four books uh, of around thirty to forty pages each, and I'm in the. I've scripted the first book, um, and I'm trying to find the time to to script the the la- the next three, the remaining three. Um, it's called Deuces Wild. Um, it's kind of a space epic uh, with bounty hunters and um, assassins and a little bit of government conspiracy, um, kind of a 
kind of a Star Fox meets the usual suspects with a little Ocean's Eleven peppered in. Heavy, heavy card theme, playing cards, heavy playing cards theme uh, throughout the entire story. So a lot different than Dust Bunny in some ways. Um, and I'm looking to hopefully do this one full color. So that will be another undertaking that, uh, that I'll be doing. We'll see how that turns out. You had me at Star Fox. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's going to be a fun story, I think. So last, last thing, um, do you have, well, you, you obviously have a Facebook because you've mentioned it, but do you also have like a Twitter or any other form of social media where people can see your work? Yeah, um, uh, brettbrooks.com, B-R-E-T-T-B-R-O-O-K-S.com is my, is my main site. I'm actually in the process of, of, of redeveloping that where I'm working with a friend of mine to redesign kind of the whole site and, and centralize everything um, with Dust Bunny and, uh, and other projects we're working on. So there's brettbrooks.com. There's dustbunnycomic.com. Um, and these all link to the Facebook pages. They all have Facebook links on them, so you can find me there. Um, on Twitter, I am... I am uh, the at the Brett Brooks, and it, I know it's it's completely arrogant. I'm sorry. I apologize, I, but I love it. I think it's awesome. <laughs> and uh, I I think I'm I think I'm the Brett Brooks on Instagram too. I don't actually use I I, I Instagram my art and stuff, but I don't surf. Inst- I don't like go on my app and actually look at other people's stuff a lot. I just post. I don't really you know surf a lot. So. Um, those are the primary ways uh, to get in touch with me. I'm, I, I do post a lot on Facebook. I've been Dust Bunny is kind of like I said on its second wind. I think after last year, so a lot of updates are coming. More convention announcements are definitely coming. Um, lots of cool things happening with the with the comic, and so we're going to keep kind of trudging uphill. But um, but yeah, good stuff. And the Dust Bunny Facebook site also just got to seven hundred likes. Yeah, we did, and I know that's a, that's you know a small victory for an independent, but uh, I thought it was kind of cool. Like Phil well, that's, actually, that's put, great. Yeah, Phil Phil pushed it over the edge. He he shared it on either Fanatics page or Fanaticons page. I, I can't remember where he shared it, but he shared it on Facebook, and it went from like six eighty to like seven hundred overnight, um, which is great because it means more people are looking at it and kind of getting an idea of of what it's about. Um, so so yeah, that one is actually Facebook.com slash Comic. Uh, as well, so you can go there and, and, and kind of keep up with things. I try to keep that one updated semi-regular. Awesome. Thanks for coming on, Brett. Oh, man, thanks for having me on, Derek. All right, guys, that's it for the show this week. Once again, I would like to thank Brett Brooks for coming on. Always great to talk to, and hopefully we can have him back on once he has some more details on his upcoming future projects. I'm not sure who I'm going to have on as a guest next week, but I do have a, a few options. So just stay tuned to the Twitter and the Facebook page, which you can follow this show on Twitter at ddiamondexp. Like us on Facebook at facebook slash the Derek Diamond Experience. And if you want to follow me personally on Twitter, I'm at Derek underscore Diamond. And I believe that's it. Have a good rest of the week.